popular question we get asked regularly is, how do I know if my customers are happy with our relationship? There's probably no better way to identify how to build better relationships with your clients than by using our Mindset Survey tool. The Sales Mindset Survey is a free-to-use tool that is revolutionizing the sales performance industry. This survey utilizes competing questions and the user's perceptions of themselves to identify just how well they truly perform. Are you manipulative or authentic, supplier or client-centric, complacent or proactively creative, overtly arrogant or tactfully audacious? There is no right or wrong and the survey will only be helpful as you are honest. But then why did you go one step further? We also offer a 360 degree perspective that allows you to share the survey with your peers and colleagues, as well as your customers to gain even deeper understanding of how you sell. Do your customers see you in the same light of how you see yourself? Becoming a better salesperson has never been an easy task, but the journey can be made much quicker and more effective with the right tools. By focusing on those problem areas, you will join the top 10% of sales performers in the industry and make your way to the winner's circle. Why did you give the Sales Mindset Survey a go today? The results may just surprise you. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. Okay. Well, welcome, um, Adriana, to the Sales Transformation Podcast. It's taken us a while to get here, hasn't it? <laughs> it has, Phil, but thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, life, life gets in the way of the fun things, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly does, but it's uh, still a pleasure to have you here after some months of trying to get you on the podcast. I know that um, we kind of originally reached out um, to you because your name surfaced as one of those in Sales Enablement to Watch um, uh, in the future from some publication we saw. And so we've been uh, delighted that we've been able to invite you to come and uh, sort of share a little bit about you and your experiences. Um, Adriana, what we tend to do on this before we get sort of stuck in the detail is we tend to start with giving our listeners a chance to get to know you. Okay. And I wonder if before we got started, whether in, into the main topic around, you know, sort of sales enablement and the future of sales enablement and, and so on. Um, is to uh, maybe share a little bit about your personal background. You know, wh where did you start off in life? Uh, how did you come to be in Canada? Because I know that uh, you haven't been there all your life. And perhaps mm. you could just share with us your, your backstory. That's great. How long do we have? I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> thank you, Phil. So, you know, a little bit about my backstory, as you said, I was not born in Canada. I was actually born in Venezuela. So I came to Canada 17 years ago. People ask me, why did you leave a tropical paradise to come and endure Canadian winters? And the answer is very simple. The political landscape of my country is not the best. If, you know, sometimes in the news we get uh, mm. some shine upon it and it is not the most positive news. So when I was younger and I had graduated university, I was starting my career. I said, could this not be the place where I'm going to fulfill my dreams? Um, I always had dreams of doing something that might have been a little bit more different than what I had available. I studied systems engineering. And I, what I really wanted to do was process improvement. 
I thought I was going to work in supply chain. I saw myself with a hard hat and some boots and working in a warehouse. Mm. Funny enough, I ended up working in tech for companies that installed warehouse management systems. So in a way, I kind of fulfilled my supply chain uh, dream. I started what now is called a business analyst. That was the first thing I did in my career. And interesting enough, my career took a lot of twists and turns where I have experience in the beer industry. I have experience in the retail industry and ended up here in Canada where I was able to once again, kind of like streamline my career into the tech industry. But, you know, when, when we're young and we're looking for what do we want to do after we graduate, we think, I have to get everything aligned. It has to be perfect. I studied this. When I look back and I look at all those experiences, I see how I bring each one of those things that I did to what I do today. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even when I'm, you know, I used to be in the sales floor and I used to talk about examples. I remember bringing in examples of me, you know, working in a shift where we were doing beer sales and how we did it and how we could compare the things that we did with the stores to what my reps were doing with their calls. So, because I know that this is, you know, this is a program that's uh, heard by people that might be early in their career and they're thinking about, you know, now I'm going into sales and what am I doing? Just let it go. Let it be. You, you never know. Maybe that adventure, that weird position in a company that you never thought you're like, what, but this is not what I set myself to. You're young, mm -hmm. do it, take a jump. Cause you never know what's going to happen. Um, so then I came to Canada, I started working in tech and uh, you know, here I am 17 years later, I worked in all tech companies, some startups, some scale ups, some very uh, big tech companies like the one I am right now and the one I was before. And yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a backstory of me. Okay, that's great. Can I ask why why Canada? That's a great question. So, in the moment where I was looking uh, with my with my previous uh, uh, partner, where should we go? We had a set of criteria of where we wanted to go. I wanted a place that was family oriented in terms of how people in the society was functioning. Uh, I wanted to be a mother. That was one one thing I knew I wanted to mm -hmm. do. Um, I wanted a place that felt that it was leading edge in things and thinking and technology and education and all those things. And I wanted a place where I would feel welcome. And that was the biggest thing for me. I, I'm not a visible minority being Latin American, but mm -hmm. Latin Americans are not very welcome in some places in the world. And I didn't want to feel that most importantly, I did not want my kids to feel that. Right. Okay. Um, because I, you know, parts of my family who have immigrated to other countries sometimes have felt, you know, the non being welcome. So when we set out to look where the possibilities were, you know, depending on what and how we wanted to do the process, Australia and Canada were two places that were very welcoming and they had a process mm -hmm. where you kind of went through a, a, a system point, a point system. And you said, okay, I have enough points and I can apply and you could be a permanent resident. And it was very easy and straightforward. Australia was very far away. It was very great weather and it was perfect. But I'm like, when am I going to see my family? So we said, okay, Canada. Canada's like one straight, you know, airplane ride of five hours from the capital mm -hmm. of Venezuela to here. And I applied. I got the residency. One year later, I had my visa stamped and I, you're like, welcome to Canada. So it was like, why not? 
Yes, that's an amazing story. I think it takes a huge amount of courage to, um, you know, to to up sticks in the way that you've done. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe you had little choice in your view. Um, yeah, because one reads about the political instability of, of Venice, you know, of, of Venezuela. And, um, yeah, some terrible stories about the situation yeah. there, to be honest. Um, but even so, it still takes a hell of a lot of courage to decide you want to make your home somewhere else. It is. It's not easy. Um, I think that that I think courage resilience mm -hmm. is something that you know i compare it to what's it's very important especially when you work in a sales role yeah it's something that you need to have because it is tough yeah, yeah, yeah. because you know it's it's difficult but building that resilience if, if you would ask me what is the one thing that you think a skill you should build be resilient because life is change Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So pertinent for today's environment, mm -hmm. you know, which is changing so quickly and so ambiguous and so and un so uncertain. So can, uncertain. Can I just come back to? I mean, it, it's uh, it's not often that um, you see people. Well, I suppose coming from an engineering background and and training, perhaps computer engineering more so in in the tech sector. But what was the point that made you decide to switch into, so what, what, what made you switch from uh, sort of the engineering orientation to actually more customer facing? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. So I think that there's two things, right? I, I studied a career, I graduated in 1998. So let's set, you know, no. kind of like the parameters. That will, I know it will age me, but it's okay. <laughs> when I graduated, remember the world was going to end in 1999. We didn't know what was going to happen. And all of mm -hmm. us who were studying a career that had to do with technology were very focused on how are we going to fix the, you know, the two, the two uh, number issue with, with the year, right? And yes. how are we going yeah, to yeah. go out in systems and do all this? So when I graduated, the tech kind of buzzword of the moment was ERP and everybody and their mother was implementing an ERP. And the reason was they needed to get rid of legacy systems, do something that was, yeah. you know, implement the ERP that did more, but also overcome the issue that we had. I felt that I did not want to spend my life implementing things and just sitting behind a computer, which sounds very interesting because I was studying systems engineering. Yeah. But the reason why I studied systems engineering is that I felt that systems engineering was like being an industrial engineer, but instead of working with machines, I worked with computers. Okay. But I always had this inclination of being in front of people. I loved doing presentations. I was a teacher associate. Like I was the person in front of the classroom. Okay. So when the opportunity came and I came to this first role where I was, you know, they, they hired me to be, and that point in time, they called us implementation consultants, but we were really business analysts, right? And I got a flavor of going into a customer site, seeing all their requirements, bringing them back to my company, and then doing the whole implementation and the training and all those things that were done back then. And I realized, wow, this is great when you get to meet people and really understand what is happening on their side. So I was in this company and, you know, when you were in, in 1999 implementing software, it was very hectic because this was not cloud. This was on premise. Mm -hmm. We were going to the sites. We were working till three in the morning. 
things will not work. You had to do a re-implementation from disks into a, a, a server. And it was, it was, I had burnout. And I remember going into the office of the, of the manager of the company and saying, you know what? I, I don't think I can do this anymore. I'm just like 25. I need to have a life and I am burning out. And he actually told me, look, you know, the product, you're very good in front of people. Would you consider coming and doing sales with me? And I'm like, sales, I don't know how to sell. He's like, don't worry. Don't worry about the sales portion. I need you to start doing because he needed somebody to do the demos. Basically, I was doing like a solution engineer, but he said, but I will teach you the full cycle, how to do prospecting and all those things. So I'm like, oh, and so what, what, what do I have to do? And the guys like taught me how to manage what we had in that point. That was a CRM. We're talking Salesforce was just being created in that year. So what mm -hmm. we had was maybe Excel sheets or a, I don't know, a, I think it was a, not even a, an SQL kind of system that yeah. was our CRM. I failed miserably in that job, Phil, miserably. Okay. I was, I, I think I did not have maybe good coaching. I was great doing demos. I was amazing in front of the customer, but the sales process, I was not good at. And I think it was, you know, when I look back, it was a matter of there was no real sales process, but something there clicked me into saying, I failed here, but I like this. I want to keep doing this. I want to keep meeting people. And I got an inkling for doing sales. You know, some people are motivated because the commission check is big. Some people are motivated because, no. you know, they're winning and a lot of competitive people go to sales. I loved sales because my satisfaction was when I saw that there was a process issue in my customer. I knew I had the solution for them. So I came from it from a very engineering angle, mm. right? And I think that was how I enjoyed doing sales. And that's how I, you know, as I tell people, I went to sales by accident, like many of us have done. Mm -hmm. I think it's very leading edge that there's a university or an institution that is giving sales as a, as a formal training. Um, but I love it. <laughs> I love sales. Mm. What can I say? <laughs> That's great. Um, so you then you, you sort of, I guess over, over time you had, you know, different, perhaps different sales roles. Um, mm. um, and then you sort of found your way into the sales enablement space. Yes. Um, could you, could you just quickly chart the progression you made before you, you know, within sales, uh, before you, you decided sales enablement is an area to explore further? So it was 15 years of sales career before okay. I decided on sales enablement. And the reason why sales enablement is what, because I went on mat leave and here in Canada, we have a year of mat leave, a year, year and a half. Okay. I, and I had a lot of time to think. And I had oh. gotten to a point of my career where I said, I want to do something more, but what is more in sales, right? Was it sales management? Was it to take a more, I don't know, enterprise selling role. Yeah. And I started to think that is not what I want. I did want to manage people, but I didn't want to do sales management. So I started in this internal quest of what is it that I want to do? I have been a full cycle account executive from prospecting to close. I yeah. had been, you know, a key account executive. I had been a category type account executive or a key account, um, account executive. I had been a, 
I have done every type of sales that you can imagine. I would say except very big enterprise deals. I think that my, my bigger, my biggest deals were not as big as maybe some of those that we hear from the big, big no. tech companies. But big enterprise was not calling my attention. I had the opportunity in the company I was in at the time. So it was a very introspective moment for me of if I'm going to leave sales, I said, what can I do that will keep me connected to the sales team, but I'm not selling? That was actually my, my thinking. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I'm talking, this is 2015, 2016, 2015. Enablement was not what it is today. Mm -hmm. Right. Enablement was kind of like starting to become a word or a definition or a, a thing. There were sales operations and I, we had sales trainers, but we didn't really have that figure of sales enablement. It was just kind of forming. So when I discovered that my company had a team that was called sales enablement and these this team came to give me a training and I saw what they did. Oh, I fell in love. I fell head over heels mm. over it. <laughs> Great. So, uh, so that was that was your introduction to sales enablement. So, yeah. So, so what I I, I agree. I mean, sales enablement is a term that um, has um, come to the fore, as you say, in the last maybe ten years. But I think it's evolving, or it's evolved even within the ten years. Yeah. Um, since. Uh, so we we have, I believe, in the UK, a strand of you know it was originally this the Sales Enablement Society. Is yes. That right? Yeah. Got uh, San Santucci, is it? Who was one of the founder members of the one probably, of the founding members? Yeah, exactly. Yes, I, yeah, I know there are many others, but I remember going to the first meeting or one of the first meetings in London, and there was a, a group of people at the meeting. There must have been about twenty or thirty. And most of the people in that room were people who were involved in some sort of CRM sort of systems implementation, I, mm -hmm. I would say. They weren't so much on the development side. It was more to do with, you know, how to leverage the, the systems to make sales forces more productive. But, it, that, you know, that was a long time ago. It was. But I would like, uh, you know, you, you, so you've been in sales enablement and you've, I guess in this role, has it been predominantly with one company, with a number of companies in this role? I mean, give us an idea of the, the, the sort of roles you've had within sales enablement. So I started in this company um, where I was an account executive and then I moved to enablement and my, and I did onboarding. So I was the program manager for onboarding, which okay. was a great way to start an enablement because we all yeah. know how that is, you know, yeah. the most important part. I moved from that company and I dipped my feet into startups. And what, what excited me about going to startups was mm -hmm. I was going to create enablement in these startups. Okay. So these were startups that were just kind of setting up their sales, yeah. you know, teams yeah. And where VPs of sales said, we need enablement, which was great because I was yeah. like, oh, that, that's not happening everywhere. So I had the opportunity to move to three. I went to three startups okay. where I did like, let me, let me start up the enablement kind of practice. First startup was not that successful because there was a, 
they got acquired and there was a dismantling of the how the sales org works. So there was like a whole thing there. Went to the yeah. second startup, was very successful, was able to even have a team, had people underneath me. We were growing and then the pandemic hit. Okay. Uh, the pandemic was a very interesting time for enablers, right? Because I actually, when the pandemic hit, Phil, I was onboarding a class. So okay. I, th those people, half of their onboarding was completely yeah. on Zoom. Okay. And then after that company, I went to another startup. Interesting enough, that startup built an enablement product. So I was the director of enablement for a company that sold an enablement product. And it was fascinating. It was great. Okay. If, if I have to say, what was your favorite enablement role was that one? Because okay. all I did all day was either enable people or talk to enablers or have to be in enablement. It was like a kid in a candy store. Okay. That company got acquired. That company got acquired by Salesforce. So then I ended up in the one of the biggest tech companies in the world doing yeah. enablement with very brilliant minds and a lot of people that are there that, that are building enablement in that machine so that's kind of the progression that i had in sales enablement yeah. sales enablement is a career that you just as we were talking about my immigration story yeah. you have to have that courage and that resilience to go get it go build it yeah. and if it fails you just dust yourself off and you move to the next one so I mean, you've obviously got a huge amount of experience in working with, you know, startups and with large corporates. And, you know, um, what have been some of your key learnings from the experiences that you've had? Some key learnings. One is very important. If the sales leader or the leadership team of your company does not believe in what you're doing, you're going to fail. Okay. It doesn't, it does not matter how much work you put, how many hours, how many nights you don't sleep. If there's not a belief in the function, yeah. you are going to fail. And it's not personal. It's not about your abilities. It is not right. about your intelligence. It is they're not going to believe in what you bring. So that's the first lesson. And if you feel or if you see that there's not a belief in enablement, get out of that company. Can I just uh, just stop you there before you move on yeah. to some of the other lessons? But because I, it's interesting that you, you've had experience with startups, and mm -hmm. I don't know if these were venture capital or private equity led startups. But um, my experience of startups is 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 um, that a number of them have been quite reluctant, you know, to yeah. properly invest in sales enablement mm -hmm. because they. You know, they just want to, you know, recruit more salespeople. If we need to sell more, just recruit more salespeople. Oh, my, oh my God, know, yes. It's that sort of so, – so when you talk about, um, you know, this needs to be brought in by the CEO, I just mm -hmm. wonder whether whether you experience that, 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 you know, the type of organization that you worked for, you know, startup versus more mature perhaps um, – whether that had an influence on this CEO philosophy that you talked about just now? Uh, I think that, yes, the CEO, this depends on how the CEO sees of what sales is going to do and okay. how much the CEO kind of relies on their sales leadership, because that's another thing. The sales leader might be very into an enablement role and the CEO doesn't believe it. Then yeah. I would say, okay, then, then there's a disconnect there. 
Um, I had CEOs of companies that asked me these startups, but what is enablement? Like, we don't get it. We don't get why this is important. And I would tell them exactly what you said. Well, you can solve this problem many different ways, right? You need to sell, you need to sell and you have a quota and, and goals to achieve. You can yeah. do different things. You increase the price. You ask people to sell more. You hire more people to sell the same amount, but you have it in more people yeah. or you make your people better. And the yeah. way to make your people better is by bringing enablement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very, very interesting. So that's the first one, sort of, um, yes. sort of having a CEO um, who really believes in it. Yes. And it's, it's interesting. It's um, you use the word function, believes in the function, um, but you've also got this, um, you know, is enablement a function or a philosophy? But um, maybe we'll come on to that 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 question a bit later on. But um, okay, so so what's what's the second? The second learning is that we always we can be perfectionist in enablement. Things are going to fail. Things are not going to be pretty. Just just like any startup when they're building a product, progress not perfection. Be agile. And just do the things that you need to do and correct along the way, because you're not going to be able to build the perfect program or the perfect presentation or the perfect, I don't know, script or the yeah. perfect coaching session, but you need to do it. Okay. Yeah. And is this, is this not being able to do it to perfection? Is this with limitations of time or money or, you know, investment that you have to do some of the things that you want to do? A hundred, especially money. Okay. Who has, who has budget and enablement? Very little people have, and very little people have a budget that will allow them to say, oh, this is my wish list. And I want all yeah. these things. I want the tools. I want the people and I want all these. So yeah, yeah. Last year, actually, in the Sales Enablement Collective uh, meeting in Toronto, I did a presentation called From Analog to Digital. It was like, yeah. how do you build anything in enablement using almost pen and paper? And pen and paper for us is, you know, uh, maybe a, a spreadsheet and your imagination. Okay. Because one thing that we have to be very good at is that we have to build things that are going to work in the analog world. So we can go show that there are results, show that people can do it for us to be able to say, okay, now that I've proven it, can I have, for example, the money to buy a tool that will allow me to automate this process? Okay. Case in point, uh, you know, uh, call intelligence tools, for example. Yeah. Um, so it is important to understand that you need to be scrappy. There's no marketing people that are going to come and help you build something yeah. pretty. If you need to build a site, you're going to have to do it a lot yourself. And that is okay. That is fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very difficult sort of demonstrating ROI with some of these activities mm -hmm. that you, you can directly attribute, you know, to a specific um, sort of action that's been taken, whether it's that's... training or a, a tool, you know, yeah, what's the ROI of call intelligence tools? I mean, it takes a while to collect the data, doesn't it? It does. You but know, And then but, to analyze the data. But but you bring a, a very important word in there. That's the attribution. And yeah. I I have to say that my, my maybe my third point yeah. is everything is measurable and you need metrics and enablement. And this is like the biggest one. 
People okay. start to say, oh, but it's my NPR scores or my survey scores. No, 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 no. I am a big believer that people in surveys are not honest. So mm -hmm. I, I'm very skeptical about survey results, okay. right? Because I have seen people do things mechanically for the sake of getting over with it. Right. I need to understand if what I'm doing is really impacting the business. And sometimes those metrics are not going to be easy. And sometimes the, you know, the correlation is not going to be perfect, but you need to really understand if I am touching the sales team and I am taking an hour of their time, how did that make them better? Even if the correlation is not like, oh, thanks to enablement, they sold, you know, 25% more. But yeah. what was the impact, right? So it, it is very important that for every effort that you do, you know what metric you are actually impacting. So for that, you need to understand your metrics. And for you to understand your metrics, you need to understand what's important for the business. And sometimes important for the business goes beyond what's important for the sales leader. So I invite enablers to really kind of understand their entire business, like the company, Understand what is important for the business and then say, how is sales influencing this? Because it is like a cascade, right? And how am I going to influence the salespeople? And I know that there's a lot of people that in enablement that might be scared of going there because it's a dark side, because sales ops is not, you know, they're not very friendly because, I don't know, it's difficult to manage data and export it from the CRM. Again, just like we spoke about courage, about immigration, be courageous with your numbers and your metrics. They're there. Could you could you perhaps give one example of what you mean by sort of, you know, sort of collecting, you know, knowing what the metrics are? Yes. So, you know, people understand, you know, that typically the sales teams have the typical five metrics, right? The velocity, the sales velocity metrics. It's win mm -hmm. rate. It is, you know, a deal size. It is mm -hmm. ramp time. It's all the metrics that we know. But when we dissect those metrics and we really kind of understand what does it really mean, for example, to increase win rate? Mm -hmm. Well, increased win rate does not happen by magic just because I want people to sell more and to make sure that they sell. Win rate happens when you have a healthier pipeline, right? Okay. Because the win rate is just a percentage of the amount of deals that you close over the amount of deals you have in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So how do you start? So how do you start with that? You go to the pipeline. So when you go to the pipeline, you understand what are we doing to really know that I have the deals that I am confident should be moving through the sales cycle. Mm -hmm. I am not saying you're going to be, you know, you're not going to be a magician to know, oh, every deal that I bring in is going to close. But the early stages of the sales cycle is where you can control mm -hmm. that those deals deserve to be in your sales cycle. When you see it that way and you teach your teams to actually be more, I would say, to fine tune their skills for like a discovery in a demo phase or, a, you know, early stages of the sales cycle, then they will understand that just because they have an inflated pipeline, that is, does not make them a better salesperson. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the influences of enablement, one metric that I would say there is not, oh, did we increase the win rate? That's great. But for me as an enabler was, did I decrease, did I increase the amount of opportunities mm -hmm. that went from discovery to close? One, okay. did I also 
And this is a metric that I have. I have shared this metric in many places and people look at me like I'm crazy. And I say, did you increase the amount, the percentage of opportunities that go from discovery to close lost? Okay. Think about it, right? You need to lose the opportunities in the discovery phase. Do not wait for them to be on stage six to lose them because you can't control it there. So I would tell people, where, where, where are the items that we can control and we can help the salesperson control them? Mm-hmm. And it's just changing the, per- the perception of what the sales cycle is. And, I'm, and it sounds very easy and I know how hard it is yeah. and it is not an easy thing to do. But when you start to achieve that, then you get them comfortable in things like, let me listen to my calls, coach me on my calls, let's do it again. Then they get more comfortable in the, let me go into my CRM files and understand, do I have all the information that I need? You start to get them comfortable with the process, not the other way around. Because what, what do we typically do? You're not updating the CRM, you're not listening to your calls, but they ask, but what for? I have pipeline. I have a bunch of pipeline. I don't need to do it. Yeah, but is that pipeline converting? So I think that when you look at the process that way, again, Phil, as we were talking, so looking at it as an engineer, I'm looking at yeah. it as a process. Well, I was just saying, I can see your engineering background coming, coming out of the way you're talking. So. <laughs> I think that's what makes it, what makes it better at the end. Yeah, it, 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 it is, uh, it is interesting. Um, And I think that uh, from a number of people I've spoken to in in your field of sales enablement and in sales ops, you know, quite often they, they, some of them have had some sort of a mathematical background at at a very high level. Mm -hmm. And the way they look at data is very different to where where salespeople look at data. The way they look at probability ratios is very different. Yes. And I I think that... um, I think perhaps generally salespeople are notorious of, of perhaps being over optimistic. Uh, yeah. On you know sort of their deals that they're sort of managing and um, find it difficult to uh, extricate the emotional side of looking at deals and the just sheer number side, you know, uh, as well. So so, uh, but that's that's in itself is perhaps another another topic to talk about. A hundred percent. That is a great topic to talk about because yeah. I think that that's where the scare to numbers might come from. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah. again, another topic. It's just, I mean, it's very, you know, once you, once you close a deal, you know, it's very interesting how your attitudes to pipeline change. You think all the deals are going to close because you're on that winning streak. You know, when you lose a deal, then you start to think, which you are hoping to win, uh, you start to think, oh, gosh, how strong are all the deals? Yes, exactly. But I I, and I think it's, you know, it it is a numbers game at the end of the day. And it um, is. It is. Uh, But it's it's helpful to have that. um, It's a bit like Daniel Kahneman's work on thinking slow and fast. I don't know if you've you've read his book. Um, Many uh, a while ago, but yes, <laughs> yes, a while ago. But I just love the book because it uh, yeah. it describes two modes of thinking. Yes. Um, so so okay, R- really really interesting um, to to hear your your points of view. You talked about three uh, sort of key learnings, and I you know you've possibly forgotten <laughs> the original question. What are your key learnings? But are there any others that for you that you'd like to talk about? 
I mean, there's, you know, it comes, then, then comes a lot of the other ones. I think another key learning is learn how to say no very early. Enablers, we tend to have the personality of people that we want to help, right? I have not met an enabler that is not willing to help. And I would say that the best, you know, the base, the best testament to that is the societies and the, and the, you know, the amount of groups of enablers that are out there. Right. We have groups like the Sales Enablement Society, the Sales Enablement Collective, the Sales Enablement Squad, the Women in Sales Enablement. And yeah. I have not been in a conversation in any of these where 50 people jump to give you advice yeah. or to help yeah. you or to jump on a call with you. It is a beautiful place to be because we are a very collaborative, you know, kind, but that yeah. also comes with the downfall. But then people start to take advantage of that when you're in a yeah. company. So I tell one thing I learned too was how to say no very early. Right. And sometimes you have to say no to your leadership, mm-hmm. <clears throat> especially when they leadership will always think they have the solution to the problem. Yeah. And you have to say, no, I disagree with that. And this is why um, I have a, I have a, an anecdote of a sales leader who tried to say that our in, in order for a BDR to ramp, they had to do in three weeks, I think they had to achieve something like 13 meetings. Okay. And I told him that is basically impossible. And he said, no, it's not. And the numbers are here and I need them to do 13 meetings. So I came up, I came with my numbers and I said, here's the historic data of the last six classes we have had. And nobody has done over five. And here are your top performers who nowadays are just like giving meetings like crazy. And this is where they started. So we are doing four and that is the ramp metric. And I was very adamant of not moving it. So he actually had to say in the meeting, okay, I do not agree with that, but we will leave it there. And then after we had more classes, he had to say, you were right in trying to pressure people to do more is a mistake. It was, you know, it was a hard meeting, Phil. It was a very hard meeting. meeting. But, but yeah. you know, it's, um, it, it's quite interesting because I think part of the challenge with some of these emerging practices around sales enablement and is it is that uh, quite a number, fewer perhaps now than they used to be, but mm-hmm. quite a number of the people involved in very sen- senior sort of sales leadership roles, sales, sales VP roles, have come from a history of sales, which was very much uh, just as you've you've described. I mean, I remember when uh, and 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 so they are modelling what they think they need for new salespeople to do based on their own personal kind of background and you know experience in sales. And yes, um, it, it, you know, sort of old systems thinking versus new systems thinking. And it's it, it, it's amazing. It, it's extraordinary. I mean, we we come across clients of ours who you know, have certain sales performance related issues. It doesn't happen so much now, but it, used, it, it, it does happen still where they say, I've got a problem with sales performance. We need to teach our salespeople to close the deal. So can you run workshops on closing the deal, you know, closing the sale? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I, I sort of shudder a little bit when we um, you sort of ask the question, because you know that the problem is is not on 
you know, that won't be solved with, with sort of closing techniques or whatever it might be. Exactly. Because yeah. the problem is at the beginning and it's, it's interesting. It's at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting when these sales leaders say, we need a better negotiation training. I know. I'm like, great. So what is the problem we're trying to solve? People are not closing. Good. Yeah. Why are we not closing? Correct. And then, and you have to dig, you have to dig and you have to ask questions. I always tell any other enablers. And when I had a team and when I was training a team, I said, you need to do discovery questions just like you would be in a discovery call as a salesperson. Mm. You need to go deeper and deeper and deeper to understand the root cause. Because yeah. I would say that 99% of the times the issue that is happening is mm. not where you think you is, it is right it now. Is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so, it's so interesting. You, sh you sort of share the same, same thoughts. Uh, yes as we do yeah okay um so uh anything else you'd like to share on key learnings, uh, key learnings. <laughs> I think <laughs> it's interesting I think another one is very important is don't take anything personal um okay. because it is it is it is a it's kind of like a sensitive environment you're with a sales team you know, I had a leader in a company that said, when things go wrong, everybody blames enablement. When things go right, nobody remembers them. And it yeah. is true. It is true. It is a very, it's like, I don't know, it's like being a mother, you know, yeah. nobody gives you thank you until it's Mother's Day and you get flowers. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but to be honest, just because people don't say thank you a lot, just because people might blame you for things, just because people might not remember you know, in their speech, you know, when the top performer gets their president's club award and they don't say, oh, thank you, Sally, for all the time you spent with me coaching, they're not going to remember you. Mm -hmm. And that is okay. And when things go wrong and they start to say it's your program, it is not you. It's not a reflection of you. It is again, a reflection of, okay, why don't we sit down and understand what was the issue here? Mm -hmm. So having that mentality um, I read a book a few years ago, a, a leader I had recommended it to me and I recommend it all the time. It's called Black Box Thinking by mm -hmm. Matthew Syed. I love that book. Yeah, yeah. I've read it three times yeah. and it's a great way to understand that for you in order to fix things, you have to go back and see where were the mistakes and now let's learn from them. Let's really learn from what happened. Let's not put a, a, a you know, let's not avoid what happened and start over again. Right. So don't take it personal. Um, you're doing a great job. There is going to be one or two reps on the floor that will always come and say, thank you. And will say, thanks to you, I was able to do this. Mm -hmm. And even if they don't do it, know that if your team is moving forward, if the metrics are being met and, and things are happening, you are doing an amazing job mm -hmm. and don't let anybody let you think otherwise. Yeah. No, very good. Yes, Matthew, yeah, yeah, Syed is a great uh, table tennis player, as you probably know. He, did you know that? Mm -mm. You didn't. I he did had, not know that. He was a, a British national table tennis champion. Oh, wow. Amazing. And, uh, and he's now, of course, a great journalist and a great author. And uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite authors as well. Yeah. Um, so can we talk about... Um, you know, you've, you, you've joined a new, you know, a new organization, well, it's not a new organization, but you've got a new role back in an organization you've worked at before. Um, and I guess you, now with the experience that you've had of, of, you know, so much learning from different organizations, um, sort of what, how do you, 
how do you see the future for sales enablement and 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 what what you know what 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 do you see you now what what's your vision for sales enablement perhaps as you see it being applied in the new environment in which you're now working if if it's possible to share but uh, 100% okay um so i feel sales enablement I feel enablement as a whole is going to evolve into having enablement in different departments. And I'm seeing it in, in several companies. You know, our, our company currently, we have enablement in several in, in departments. And, and one, one example is myself. I am now leading enablement for a team of product and engineers. So it is, it is the other side of the, of the company. It is the product managers, the software developers, the architects. It is people that traditionally, you know, an enabler has not touched them, right? They have been usually training and onboarding and all that for these teams happen at the manager level. But now the structure of sales enablement has been so meaningful for the company that they said, we need that here. So this is how this came along. My, my, my leadership currently said, we need what this structure that we have in sales enablement, we need to replicate it in other places because they see the benefit. So again, we go to the fact of have a leader that believes in enablement, right? My CEO and my executive leadership team believe in enablement highly. So, you know, not only that, you know, now we're opening enablement in other areas. And you would say, well, what has, what does that have to do with sales enablement? Well, the impact that you're doing is so important that if the other sides of the company want to have you there, it means you're doing something good. So I think that sales enablement is, you know, there's many places that are um, now gathering it as revenue enablement because they have, you know, the customer successes team and the BDR teams and the sales teams. There are some companies that are maybe separating sales enablement from maybe customer success enablement. But I think that we're evolving as to your point, you know, we were talking about function or philosophy. Yeah. I think these things are evolving to the fact that every department is needing an enabler. Which for me comes to think that I, I would joke in, in the societies and the conversations, we always joke about, how about the chief enablement officer? That sounds like a great title. So if we think about it and every function wants to replicate yep. what sales enablement has done, I think I see a future where we can have an enabler sitting in the C-level. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, why not? Yes, it's interesting. So even though you are working with the product engineers, I think you said, and mm-hmm and people that are normally sort of associated with slightly sort of behind the scenes activity. Is there still a connection with sales and what you're doing? But but you're having to deal with a community of, uh, you know, different types of uh, yeah, functions and and so on. Or are you are you simply not simply in a derogative sense? Are you taking the frameworks that you've done for sales enablement and applying it to other functions? I am actually, it's funny because when I, when I have been doing in the last few weeks, I have been doing a lot of discovery to understand how yeah. does this side of the company work and what would work for them. Yeah. Interesting enough, at the beginning, somebody told me, oh, to find metrics here is going to be impossible. Okay. I'm like, no, it's not impossible. It's just that they're hiding somewhere. Okay. So I applied kind of like that same mindset and I discovered metrics. I discovered a way to get them. Yeah. I discovered that applying a framework that, you know, some people call it an enablement charter. 
some people yeah. call, call it an enablement framework that I have applied different in other places, I realized people are actually very receptive of having that framework here, okay. especially because things have been very disassociated. Some teams were doing things, some teams were not. Onboarding was very loose. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. how about if we put all this in a very pretty process, we give everybody a journey and we make people feel like we, you know, we got them and we understand what they need. How, what would that influence in terms of them mm -hmm. not only doing their job, but in their journey in the company, right? Because now one thing that is very different is the way that people on, on this department are motivated different than salespeople. Okay. I tell a salesperson, I'm going to put a metric of who makes the most discovery calls and I'm going to put a leaderboard and they're all for it, Damn. right? I say that to an engineer and they're going to look at me sideways and continue doing what they're doing. They do not care, yeah. right? But if you, if you learn how people are incentivized and what they're doing every day and what does that mean to the big picture, then you can actually build that framework with those incentives along the way. So things, for example, that I, I have seen is, it is important for the engineering side to understand how the product is sold. It is important for the engineering side to understand what our customers are doing with the product. Right. So I am seeing the things that they're missing. And yeah. I'm thinking, how would this impact the way they create the products, right? And I, I was using yeah. an analogy of a house the other day, I said, if I am building a house and I'm only building the bathroom, I only know bathroom, yeah. but I do not understand the importance of the bathroom within the house, yeah. right? So that is kind of like what I'm doing. And yes, there's a lot of the frameworks and the ideas that you can bring to other areas. You just need to understand how you apply them. We had on a recent podcast, Andy, Andy Raskin. Um, he, uh, have you heard of Andy Raskin? I've heard of Andy. Yeah, Do I know Andy. He, he's, uh, yeah, he's had, he's had a, he, yes, he has this concept called a strategic narrative. Um, and um, he's on one of our podcasts, and I, I think you might find him quite interesting to listen to. I would but love to, yeah. What, what, one of the things that, the, the reason why I'm mentioning Andy was because um, he, he has, um, you know, through various reasons, mm -hmm. um, uh, through failure mainly, <laughs> failure yeah. to, to sell his. <laughs> he he was involved in a startup. He went to pitch for venture capital, and uh, and, and and he got this feedback early early on in his in in the pitching process that um, he had the feedback from one of the venture capital institutions saying this is one of the worst presentations I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. You know, he had this sort of feedback, so he got very interested in the what he's defined as the strategic narrative he's a he went off to journalist school to understand about creating narratives he studied people who've written uh, scripts for pixar i believe and, and you know that and so on but he's interested in the storytelling and he's come to the conclusion that where this starts is with the sales deck because the sales yeah. you know the sales deck is where the rubber hits the road so Everything that you do links back to the narrative that you, the story that you want to tell, the 
um, the disruption you may want to create and the way you tell the story starts there. And it starts there, but then it works back throughout the organization through marketing. So it doesn't start with marketing. It doesn't start with product marketing. It starts with the sales deck, um, which mm-hmm. is... Um, uh, which is very interesting and sort of hearing you talk now about linking what the product engineering teams are doing, linking it back to what customers want is very much kind of supporting that notion of connecting customer to functions that go deep inside a company and hopefully connecting the dots and creating yeah. better products and better solutions and whatever it might be. That and really, need. you know, and understanding like, I'm building this piece of this product, but how does it affect the person who uses it? And I have seen engineers kind of light up when they understand that and say, wow, that is, that makes me want to build things like, you know, with another mindset, right? Like build things. Yeah. 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 Yes. You mentioned, you mentioned the word mindset, you know, so much of this sort of comes back to mindset and, uh, Mm. It's a topic that's uh, very close, close to my heart as well, given the the doctoral research that I've done on the topic. Um, but uh, okay, well, I'm realizing that we're getting close to kind of finishing <laughs> time here. The time is literally we're, we're having we're having too much fun, Phil. This is why fun. it was really good fun. I really enjoyed talking to you, and um, uh, <clears throat> I, I don't quite know you know sort of what to say um, apart from to thank you for giving us your time to share your insights on, on this important topic. Um, uh, the, 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 just one, there's one thing that I just wanted to reflect on, which is yes. your comment about communities of practice. And you, you talk about the way the sales enablement community have become incredibly supportive. Yeah. You don't see that so much in sales, do you? No, you don't. You sales... Don't. I mean, there are some, there are some sales communities, um, you know, that that I have followed. There are some salespeople that kind of bring this audience and get them, but there's not that collaborative nature. No, no. It's it's very uh, sort of individualistic and, uh, and, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very hard to create this sort of community of, of practice and it's it's something that we are you know that we've been working on but i've noticed in the sales enablement field i think you've really you know i agree with you you've got a you know a group of people in that sector who are pushing boundaries who are being innovate sharing ideas it's just amazing to see so yeah i think uh, i hope like you said earlier that there could be the future the the chief enablement officer wouldn't that be i one? really think that <laughs> there, that will happen i think that there are some companies that are paving the way for that okay. i am very proud to work in a company that believes in enablement yeah. this much yeah and you know we do and yeah we do bring benefits to the company and to the teams that yeah. we that we touch so yeah why not why not <laughs> Okay, well, on on that note, perhaps we could call it a day. So thank you very much. Um, Thank you, Phil. I appreciate you having me here on the podcast. And, you know, happy to come back and happy to continue collaborating. I think we will be. I feel as though we've only got a quarter of the story. (laughs) 
But thank you for being so generous with your time. And also, I know that you're not feeling 100%, but it certainly doesn't come across that you're feeling poor. I know, because I'm talking with you on a topic I'm very passionate about. So suddenly <laughs> it felt like, where is that headache? Where's the sore throat? You know, I is might feel I, my, my voice is a little bit more raspy today. But, you is know, it? when you're when you love something, you do it. You, you just, yeah. you know, you just do That's it. It's good. passion. It certainly comes across. So thank you so much. Thank you, Phil. Yeah. Cheerio. Cheerio.